We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You don't want it. You don't need it. But you're going to get it anyway. The Kevin Sheehan Show. Here's Kevin. The great Nils Lofgren, everybody, from 45 and a half years ago, June of 1978, when everybody had bullets fever, that was the last time the NBA franchise in this city won a title. Uh, they're not going to win one this year. They're over under number in Vegas at 24 and a half, the lowest of the 30 NBA teams. Uh, the NBA season opened last night with a double header, uh, including the defending champion Nuggets beating the Lakers. Uh, tonight, the Wizards open up in Indy against the Pacers with pretty much a brand new team. Kyle Kuzma's back, Daniel Gafford's back. Uh, but in the starting lineup, Tyus Jones will be the point guard. Jordan Poole, who many people think could average 25, 26 points a game or more, uh, will be in the backcourt with Tyus Jones and their seventh overall pick in the first round of the NBA draft. Bilal Koulibaly is expected to be in the starting lineup as well. Uh, this will be a year in which... The organization takes a major step back in hopes of taking major steps forward in the future. It'll be interesting because on paper, the roster that they have now isn't terrible. It's not playoff good, um, but it is offensively a team that could score a lot of points. And then they've got a couple of defenders in Denny Avdia and Bilal Koulibaly, who I think I mentioned to Tommy yesterday on the podcast, Kyle Kuzma, who I had on the radio show yesterday, said is genius defensively um, at 19 years old. Uh, But yeah, the Wizards open up tonight. I'll be watching. I like the NBA, uh, certainly in the postseason. I don't watch a lot of it during the regular season, but I'm going to give these Wizards a shot. 
see what they look like, um, see if any of those young players in particular. And remember, you know, a guy like Kyle Kuzma is just 28 years old. A guy like Tyus Jones is just 27 years old. A guy like Jordan Poole is just 24 years old. You know, it is possible that some of these players that they acquired, some believe as trade chips, could be a part of what eventually becomes the result of this rebuild. You know, the acquisition, hopefully, over the next uh, two seasons of many draft choices and trying to land on that superstar player. Uh, But it may cost you a pool or a Kuzma at some point along the way uh, to get some of that draft capital. Uh, We'll see how the season goes. Um, I know most of you don't care. Uh, and for the most part, this show will not include a lot of NBA in October, November, December, January, February. Uh, probably not until after March Madness is over. Uh, the show, as always, is presented by Window Nation. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com for their best deal of the year. Two guests on the show today. Nick Ackridge coming up in the next segment. Nick is with Pro Football Focus. He's also a huge Washington Commanders fan. So lots of conversation about Sam Howell, the offensive line, the receivers, the trade deadline, which I'll get to here uh, in a moment. And then Mark Zuckerman will be on the show after that. Uh, Yeah, Bryce Harper didn't come through last night. A lot of you reminded me of what I've been saying about Bryce Harper, that he is the most clutch team sport athlete in sports today, and he had a chance to come through last night, and he didn't. And the Phillies are out. Uh, Much more on that coming up in the final segment of the show. Uh, This review from Joey. Uh, Joey reviewed us on Apple, gave us five stars. Thank you, Joey, very much. The title of the review is More Cooley or Doc? I love this show when Kevin Cooley, Doc, and Tom talk football. I can see why Kevin doesn't like hockey very much. Hockey players don't do much self-promotion. And the show that starts with 15 minutes of self-backslapping for the great reviews is nauseating. That aside, I love this show. Uh, thank you, Joey. I don't think we really do 15 minutes. Usually I don't even read the reviews unless Tommy's on the show. Uh, and I can read something that includes Tom or if Cooley's on this show, I can read something that includes Cooley. But, um, that one made me laugh by the way. Uh, please rate us and review us if you haven't done so it does help us out an awful lot. Subscribing to the podcast helps, and so does following us, especially on Apple and Spotify. So I want to start with the trade deadline, which we are less than a week away from. October 31st, Halloween, uh, a week from yesterday, six days from now, is the NFL trade deadline. You know, a trade deadline that does not equal the NBA trade deadline or the MLB trade deadline. You know, the truth of the matter, as Ron would say, um, is that, you know, one addition on a team that can only have five players on the floor at any given time can really change a season for a team midseason. In baseball, you add a big time, you know, 
pitcher or a big-time bat to a lineup, it can really impact the remainder of the season. Very rarely does a trade really make a difference uh, eight games into the season for football teams. Now, there was one last year that made a big difference. Christian McCaffrey, that trade made a big difference for the 49ers. And really, if not for the Brock Purdy injury in the NFC Championship game, maybe Maybe the 49ers win a Super Bowl uh, last year. Uh, But there's going to be some activity here over the next six days. You know, league-wide, a lot of discussion about players like Derrick Henry, Saquon Barkley, Devontae Adams, Daniil Hunter, who leads the NFL in sacks. And yeah, uh, at the top of the potential trade deadline storylines, Chase Young, and Montez Sweat. And we talked a little bit yesterday about Josina Anderson's tweet. Uh, while And she tweeted that several identifiable teams have both interest in trading for Montez Sweat and or Chase Young and are willing to offer either a long-term deal ahead of free agency. Nikki Javala earlier today tweeted out the following. Nikki, of course, with the Washington Post. One team has made a trade offer to the commanders for defensive end Montez Sweat, but none so far have offered for defensive end Chase Young per a source, unclear of the terms for the offer for Sweat. Um, interesting. Uh, Nikki obviously covers this team very closely. So it is interesting that her source says nobody's offered anything for Chase Young, but that somebody's offered something for Montez Sweat. How about this from this morning's Jeremy Fowler, Dan Graziano, ESPN.com story? There were a couple of things in here that I found interesting from Dan Graziano at ESPN. Chase Young's name is a hot name right now, and teams have absolutely been calling the commanders to see what they want to do with him. In Young and Sweat, Washington's got two edge rushers slated to be unrestricted free agents at the end of the year, and the presumption around the league is that the team can't or won't be able to keep and pay them both. But under new ownership and with uncertainty surrounding head coach and chief organizational decision maker Ron Rivera, the commanders might not be in position to have decided what to do with Young yet. Um, And it's not out of the question they could trade Sweat as well. Then Jeremy Fowler uh, reported the following. Washington is given the impression behind the scenes that it would like to keep Young who still needs a full healthy season to prove he's back to form. Uh, And, by the way, he mentions that for right now, Young is cheaper and younger. Um, I don't know about the cheaper quite yet. He is with his current contract, maybe, uh, in this year. Um, But, yeah, um, you know, he's not really that much cheaper than Montez Sweat. I think, actually, in this particular stretch of the story, he was comparing him to whether or not you would want Daniil Hunter from Minnesota or Chase Young. And Daniil Hunter's got a much bigger uh, current uh, deal. Uh, The other thing that was in here was from Jeremy Fowler saying that um, he was told recently that games 7 and 8 were big for Washington's potential plans at the deadline. So I want to start right there. 
Uh, they lost Game 7 to the Giants. Game 8, I guess he is suggesting, might be important as well because if they were to pull off the win over the Philadelphia Eagles on Sunday and be 4-4, four and four, does that mean that they're not going to consider any offers that come in for Chase Young or for Montez Sweat or, by the way, for other players? I mean, Curtis Samuel is an unrestricted free agent at the end of the year. So is Kendall Fuller. So is Antonio Gibson. So is Cameron Curl. So are many other players. They've got a lot of unrestricted free agents at the end of this year as it stands right now. And they've got a franchise tag that they could clearly use if they need it. Um, I personally, this is a muddled situation because of ownership right now, clearly. And the fact that this is not their group, there's going to be more likely than not a different group in at the end of the year, but it should not stop Josh Harris from sitting down with Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney and Ron Rivera and saying, what are you guys thinking as it relates to the trade deadline? Because I want you to hear offers on all of our players. We should be listening to any offer that comes in and then consider each one. Because whether or not the rest of the season goes well and whether or not you guys are back or not back, right now as a group, we need to do what's in the best interest of the organization. And what's in the best interest of the organization is not losing a player and getting back nothing down the road if that player isn't going to help us compete for a championship this year. We can completely eliminate any conversation, can't we? That any player on their team currently is going to be vital to some sort of championship run this year. That's why, to me, the Philadelphia game shouldn't matter. Because I actually believe there's a chance they could beat the Eagles on Sunday. But so what? We've seen how this plays out with this particular group. They'll give you a feeling like, man, they're playing pretty good football right now. And then you contemplate, well, are they a good team? Are they on the verge of becoming a good team? That conversation's taken place the last two seasons. Last year, when they were 7-5, and five, the year before, when they got to 6-6, six and six, I know I sat there and watched and wondered whether or not I was seeing something that was, you know, the development uh, and the growth of a team that actually was becoming a good team rather than just having a potential decent record. No, I'm not buying into that this year, even if they beat Philadelphia. This team is not going to win 10 games, 11 games, 12 games, and be a threat in the NFC postseason. They're not. Even if they beat Philadelphia on Sunday, this is a team that's going to be right around that 500 mark that we talked about before the season started. That's why I picked, you know, somewhat sticky, but I picked 8-8-1 eight, eight, and one for a second straight year because that's how I viewed this team. It's possible they could go completely the wrong way um, if things were to snowball because, you know, they're not exactly lighting the world on fire on offense or on defense for that matter. And they've got a schedule coming up that as of now looks, you know, pretty difficult. You know, games against the Eagles, two games against the Cowboys, a game against the Seahawks, games later in the year against the Niners and the Dolphins. So it's not like, you know, you look at it and say, even if they got it going the way they have um, the last couple of years, 
uh, you know, let's just let's assume that nobody these teams kind of stay what they are, and Washington comes up with an upset against Philadelphia, and then somehow ekes one out in Foxborough, and they're five and four. They still have the Seahawks, the Cowboys twice, the Dolphins, the 49ers, the Jets on the road. That won't be easy. This is, you know, an eight-win team. They've got maybe if things start to come around and they play well enough and we've seen them capable of playing well at times, this is a team that could win five out of their last ten, right? They're not going to win more than five out of their last ten. So... Sunday's game against Philadelphia, I just don't think should matter. They should be working the phones, answering every single call that comes in. Now, Sam Fortier wrote a story um, about sort of the pros and cons of trading Montez Sweat or Chase Young. And there was uh, a quote in here. One senior NFC personnel executive who spoke on the condition of anonymity to evaluate another team said the markets for Young and Sweat will be depressed because both are on expiring deals and are unlikely candidates for trade and signs. He was especially skeptical that a team would commit to Young now because of his inconsistency and injury history. He said Washington would probably receive offers of a fourth or fifth round pick, a third at absolute best. That's for Young. For Sweat, another NFC personnel executive, again, on the condition of anonymity, said he could see an aggressive team giving up a second round pick for Sweat. So, where am I? I don't want to trade Chase Young. I don't want to trade Chase Young. He is 24 years old. He is not even entering the prime years of his career. He's having a very good season. I understand these aren't game-changing plays. He didn't go in and wreck the Giants so much that there was no that no way they could lose the game against sort of a, a third-tier offensive line in shambles. He's not Miles Garrett. He's not T.J. Watt. He's not Nick Bosa. He's probably not Micah Parsons. I understand all of that. He could become one of those players somewhere down the road. I do think he's got that kind of a ceiling. But... We have seen three and a half years, and a lot of it's been injury-riddled. And what we're seeing right now and what we saw at the end of 2020 is a guy that can definitely be an impact pass rusher. They're hard to find. They are really hard to find. So my big takeaway here is I'm not trading Chase Young. And the idea that you could only get at this point like a third, fourth, or fifth for him, I'm definitely not trading Chase Young. I would pick Chase Young over Montez Sweat if I had to pick one or the other. And that is understanding what I don't know because that's a big part of this. What we don't know could be, you know, a mind changer for all of us on this conversation. I do know that it wasn't easy with Chase Young in 2020-2021. You know, and even at the end of last year. And that, you know, the hope was at 22, 23, that eventually there would be some maturity, some growth. And maybe we're seeing that right now. And if we are seeing that right now, I'd like to see it play out. I personally would like to see him 
on the roster. Whether you sign him to a long-term deal or you end up having to use the tag, but you're probably not going to get this group to be able to pull the trigger on a long-term deal. That's going to be the next group that comes in in January. But I want them to have that opportunity to either tag him or extend him. There is risk. I get it. There's risk. He is, you know, proven to be injury prone. And, um, yeah. And by the way, I like Montez Sweat. He's excellent against the run. He is a guy right now that is like ninth in TFLs. I'm sorry, he's fifth in tackles for loss. He is tied for ninth in sacks right now. Um, in the NFL, he's actually having a good year, Sweat is. And Sweat is definitely more consistent against the run. I like Montez Sweat. He's also very kind of athletic, freakish, you know, athleticism he has. I like both of them, but you're probably not going to keep both of them. So understanding that, Young would be the one I would want to keep. Uh... What they end up doing, I don't know. Keep in mind, too, that compensatory picks, they are offset by how much you spend in free agency. And Washington's got a lot of money to spend next year if they want to do it in free agency. They got the fifth most available cap space for 2024. So if Washington lost Montez Sweat or Chase Young to free agency, there's no guarantee, even if those guys sign a big deal, that Washington's getting a third-round pick back because it depends, you know, and there's a formula, it depends on the players they spend for. Uh, what I don't want to happen is I don't want this franchise, which is going to be retooling certainly uh, a, a little bit when this season ends, it definitely as far as front office coaching staff, pretty good bet at this point, Um I don't want them to have a player of value walk for nothing. We have already been through that in this town, and it's not fun to watch Kirk Cousins leave for basically nothing when you had a chance to get a lot. Trent Williams to basically walk for nothing when you had a chance to get a lot. That can't happen. That's where Josh Harris has to step in and make sure that the long-term interest of this organization is a, 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 an absolute priority here over the next six days. Uh, I wanted to read this tweet real quickly I got from Marcus on, on Twitter. You can follow me on Twitter at Kevin Sheehan, DC. He wrote, and it's, it's off of kind of the conversation that we had yesterday about Ron Rivera's presser from Monday where you know, he was kind of positioning himself as, hey, don't look at the record, don't look at the losses to the Bears and the Giants. We're building for the future, and we've got this wonderful young quarterback. Marcus wrote, you nailed it. Rivera's really compensating now. He knows the end is near. Question for you. Do you really think he believes what he's saying about how, or is it, as you've said, wish-casting? Thank you. By the way, you can follow me on Twitter, as mentioned, at Kevin Sheehan, DC. So I kind of addressed this with Tommy to a certain degree yesterday. I think it all started in January, like Ben Standig explained back in March, April, May. 
I think Ben was totally onto it. I think that this was a bit of, you know, a look over here, don't look here, kind of like what he did the other day. Um, and that was don't look at the Cleveland game and the way the season ended. Look at the guy that started the season finale. Look at the way he played. By the way, 11 for 19. He was okay. Um, and we've got our quarterback. He's our QB1 heading into the offseason. And that, I think in the moment, Marcus, was wish casting. I think that that was very hopeful but wish more wishful without really knowing what the right answer was. You know, they said all the right things, you know, oh, you should have heard the DBs talking about how they turned around. The ball was already there. The receivers are coming out of their breaks. Ball's already there. Well, yeah, they were comparing it to Taylor Heineke's, you know, uh, throwing of the football. I think in that moment, it was all about how do we make them forget how badly this season ended Um, And now knowing that we can't do anything big in free agency, we can't go after a quarterback in a big way because of the ownership situation, let's really build up Sam Howell. But as I mentioned to Tommy yesterday, I think Sam really helped them out. Helped them out during the offseason because he really showed a lot of promise. Helped them out during the summer in preseason games, in their practices with the Ravens. There was nothing in watching him in the offseason or over the summer that said, uh-oh, we never had that moment. And then when the actual games began, there has been more good than bad. So I do think this was wishful thinking to begin with, but I think they got a little bit lucky in that it could have gone the other way. He could have been horrible. They didn't really know, but as it turns out, they had a guy that had some skill and talent, which they knew, and he more than made something out of that skill and talent and work ethic and and coachability and some of the intangibles that he has. And even though we still don't have an answer on Sam Howell, that's better than having the answer, no, he's not the guy. We don't know that for sure. It's not obvious that he's not the guy. There are things that are troubling, of course, and we've gone through all of those things, and Nick Ackridge will speak to some of that from a PFF standpoint in the next segment. But for the most part, we haven't seen a guy completely crap the bed, and therefore he can continue to say, as he did the other day, we got this young guy. And he's giving us an opportunity and we're building for the future. And, you know, maybe I'm going to leave you with your franchise quarterback. I wouldn't wager on it even now. No chance. Uh, I think the chances are still less than 50-50 that he ends up being a long-term, you know, franchise quarterback answer. Actually, a lot less than 50-50 that he ends up being sort of that franchise quarterback type. Um, but a little bit less than 50-50 that he ends up being, you know, a starting caliber NFL quarterback. There's just a lot and a long way to go before we can say that or even wager that that is uh, the probability um, because I don't think it is. But anyway, thank you, Marcus. Yeah, um, I think right now he believes that Sam Howell's got a chance. And that's probably much different than, 
than how he felt back in January. All right, up next. Uh, actually, let me just real quickly um, tell you about our good friends at the bullpen. The bullpen is the perfect place to watch sports outdoors. It's It's been the go-to spot for baseball fans. You know, if you're down at Nats Park and you're at a game, you go to the bullpen before, you go to the bullpen after. It's right there in the heart of Navy Yard. Uh, it's the place with all the crates and then all of the bars and all of the live music and all of the people. It's such a great spot. It's a great place to go hang out on a Saturday or a Sunday to watch football. This is something they're doing down at the bullpen for the first time. You know, get your guys together, wear your jerseys, head on over to the bullpen. They've got all the NFL and college football action you can handle, drinks, lots of energy, live music. You can go to the bullpendc.com to see their game schedule right now. But this is a very good destination for those that want to spend beautiful fall weekends. And we've got one coming up outside watching football. The bullpendc.com to see their game schedule. Nick Ackridge next, right after these words from a few of our sponsors. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. All right, guys, this segment of the show brought to you by MyBookie. Guess what's back for the rest of the week right through Sunday? A chance to get a 110% cash bonus on your initial deposit. That's right. They're going to more than double your money on your initial deposit. $50 minimum, $1,000 maximum. If you deposit $1,000, they're going to give you $1,100 additionally into your account. You'll have $2,100 in your account. You have to use my promo code 
Kevin DC. This is an offer that doesn't exist anywhere. It doesn't exist on their site unless you use my promo code Kevin DC at mybookie.ag. Now, my bookie's line right now, I'm pulling it up for the Wizards tonight. Remember, we've got uh, the Wizards opener down to five. At my bookie right now, that line opened at like seven. Uh, and the current number for Washington, Philadelphia on Sunday is Philadelphia six and a half. Totals at 43 and a half. So if you like Philly laying the six and a half, get it here. Get it at my bookie. If you like Washington, um, maybe wait a little bit. You might get it at plus seven. Um, I don't know where that line will go, but. I can tell you this. I think Washington's going to be in the smell test again on Friday, this time as the team that I'm going to tell you to bet uh, versus last week when I told you to bet the Giants. Uh, MyBookie.ag, they've been great to offer up what they've been offering up, which is this 110% cash bonus on your initial deposit. You deposit 100 bucks, you're going to have $210 into your account. You've got to use my promo code, KevinDC, at mybookie.ag. Jumping on with us right now, Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus. Nick's been on the show many times in the past, at PFF underscore Nick Ackridge on Twitter. He's a data analyst for PFF. His favorite team is... Washington. So even when he doesn't have the responsibility for grading Washington, he pretty much looks and scrutinizes those grades anyway. By the way, did you have the responsibility this week of doing the Giant game or not? Yeah, I did. I had the uh, I had the pleasure of um, grading the Washington offense versus Giants defense. <laughs> okay, well we'll get to that because I do want your <laughs> uh, your opinions on um, what you saw on tape of the giant game. But I, I I talked in the open just about the idea that, you know, Chase Young and Montez Sweat are near the top of the list of the players being bandied about with respect to trade deadline deals. And I'm curious as to what you think a, they should do and B they will do. Yeah. So everything's been kind of in a weird position, just kind of with this whole kind of lame duck sort of year that we've had with Rivera in the front office and all that sort of stuff. And and no one really knows what they're going to do in the future. I mean, I think we all kind of have an idea that this might be, you know, Rivera's last year and, and, you know, changes are going to come to the front office. So then it's a question of, you know, do you want these guys making the decisions for the future? And, and will it really kind of help you in the future if you're going to trade, you know, someone like Chase Young and Montez Sweat for, like a third or fourth round pick, because that's really what you're going to get because they, they will still need to be paid. Um, so then you just have to kind of ask yourself that question. Is is it worth a third, fourth, maybe fifth round pick um, instead of, you know, possibly just, just paying them or tagging them next year? And um, if it was me, I would kind of let it play out. I, I don't think that, like I said, those mid-round picks are really worth, um, you know, these kind of, rental years essentially is what you're going to be doing if you get rid of them. And we don't really see that very often in the NFL. It's not like the, the MLB or NBA or NHL or stuff like that, where you have these rental guys kind of dealt at the trade deadline. It's, it's a little different in the, in the NFL. So if it was me, I'd be looking to extend someone like Chase Young because he's, he's come back and he's had, you know, he's looked as good as he was as, as a rookie. And there's some stuff on tape that's really, really promising. And, and it's really what you wanted to see, you know, as he came back. 
That's my big takeaway as well. Like for me, I just don't want to see Chase Young in another uniform next year. Uh, I, I want to see it play out with him. And by the way, I like Montez Sweat too. I, I'd love to see him here. But does it make sense, given even con- in consideration of all of the salary cap space that they have to play with in 24, do you think it makes sense to try to keep both of them? It's tough just because you've already kept both of Allen and Payne. And to allocate all of that money to four guys on, on one position unit is really kind of tough to, to kind of wrap your head around. Um, I think Montez Sweat does deserve a second contract, whether it's a, a massive second contract, that is, whether it's here or with another team. And I think we could kind of be looking at another Preston Smith situation. I know everything Montez Sweat is kind of looked at through the Preston Smith eyes just because, you know, Mississippi State guy and, and all that other stuff and um, whatnot. But I, if, if, if it was me, I'd be, I'd be choosing one of them. Uh, I don't think you should look to kind of give both of them a massive extension. Um, I, I would be picking one, and, and I would go off the guy who's who's younger and has shown more flashes and more promise. And, um, and and for me, that would be Chase Young. Do you think that if you know some of the reporting over the last twenty four hours has been that teams would be willing to immediately look at a long term uh, contract extension with either Sweat or Young uh, if they were to acquire um, one of those two players? If there was a simultaneous deal with kind of an understanding that there was a long-term deal that was going to be signed. Do you think Washington could extract more than a third or a fourth for either? I I think you could maybe get a little bit more, but again, it, it's not like, you know, it's not like you're the ones paying them and then you kind of trade them off after that. So maybe you could get a little bit more if you could kind of get that, that promise of a, of a deal getting done. But again, I, I think, if they do get traded, I think you know Washington fans should expect that the return's not going to be very, very big. It's not going to be just for for someone you know who has half of a season left on their contract. And even if they are kind of you know traded and then signed to a long term deal, I think you have to really temper your expectations with what you're going to get in return. Yeah, and one of the things to keep in mind, right, is that while compensatory picks are a part of the conversation because of the salary cap space that Washington has next year and the and the prospect that they'll be very active in free agency it's possible that it'll all kind of wash out and you'll end up losing one of these one of these two guys and getting nothing back in return long term yeah I, it's just it's just such a tough situation to put themselves in with you know this is kind of the the other side of drafting four defensive linemen in the first round, it's like you can't really pay all of them a second contract. I mean, you could, but then you're going to have a lot of holes elsewhere. Um, so it's just a, it's a very tough situation, and, and I'm really intrigued with what they're going to do in the future with, with both Young and Sweat. Who's having the better year right now, Chase Young or Montez Sweat? I, I would lean Chase Young. Montez Sweat started off really, really hot. Um, you know, with the first the first couple couple games and, and whatnot. I mean, the first game against Arizona was one of his best games he's had in his career. Cooled off a little bit, but there's still some flashes with Montez. But he's always been a you know a consistent, reliable edge rusher. You know what you're going to get from him. Freaky athlete, um, great in the run game as well. And it just for me, Chase Young has shown exactly what we've kind of been looking for um, ever since he's kind of returned from injury, and that's 
you know, varying his pass rush and winning with something other than pure athleticism and speed. I mean, there's there's some great examples against the Giants this past week where he's he's setting up, you know, the left tackle there. And again, you're you're playing a left tackle who was on his couch two weeks ago. So I would like to see it with, you know, right. maybe better competition. But there's still some high level stuff there where he's timing the snap up perfectly, winning with a speed rush, and then because of that the tackle has to now kind of cheat outside and he's countering with an inside move and draws a holding. And then, you know, he is back to the speed rush and then he's winning with a bull rush. And it's, it's really, really promising stuff to see. And this is the type of stuff that you wanted to see and, and why you kind of made this improvement year for him. And, and these are the things that you're looking for on tape and the different ways that he's winning and, and kind of dominating the line of scrimmage. And this is, this is what you want to see. And, and that's why I would, I would lean towards Chase Young. Uh, I agree with you. Uh, I'm also interested as to whether or not you've given any thought to other players that teams may want, Um, other players that Mm -hmm. might not be back with your team next year. Look, part of the the thinking on this from my standpoint, and tell me if you agree, I just don't want to lose players – for nothing when you could get back something for a year that I don't think is going to end up being a great season. Like, I know it's the NFL. We all understand things change. They could beat Philly. They could be 4-4. and But we all kind of also, through these first three and a half seasons, understand where it's going to end. You know, it's going to end at 8-9 and or 9-8 and or 8-8-1. and And, you know, this isn't going to be a team that contends for anything so what about a Curtis Samuel or a Kendall Fuller who aren't under contract next year? You know, two players that have played well this year, uh, not to mention an Antonio Gibson who is, you know, a role player. I think I, I was hopeful that he'd become more than that. Um, what about other players? Have you given thought to some of the other players that are not under contract after this year? Yeah, I mean, good organizations are – honest with themselves they they know what to expect and, and they're not gonna you know um over expect you know what what can happen in a year and like you said we all kind of knew really going into this year they would kind of hover around 500 um and that would have changed you know if you got incredible quarterback play from a, a young quarterback that no one really knew what to expect um so the around 500 is kind of what we've expected it's kind of what's happening right now and i and like you said i think that's kind of where they'll end up um, so then you have to, you have to be realistic with yourself. And, and then it comes down to, like you said, do you want to just let these guys walk for nothing? And, and then you go back to the fact that it's a tough spot where we kind of all know what's going to happen with, with this front office and this coaching staff and whatnot. So right. you want them making the decisions and it's, it's just such a, a, a mess right now. And, and part of me wants to just, you know, blow it all up. But part of me wants to, you know, you've drafted good players, you've signed good players, you want to reward them and keep them on your team. And it's, I don't know. I, some days I wake up and say, blow it all up. I mean, after Sunday, I was saying that. And then other days I'm, I'm like, you know what, maybe maybe keep these guys, rethink it. And it's just it, it's a tough spot that they've really found themselves in. And, and it's partly because they have a new owner, which we're all very happy about. But it's also partly because they've consistently underperformed for, for a couple of years now. Yeah, I mean, I think the whole blow it up thing, and I, I'm not suggesting that you're you're describing it this way, but you can't just blow things up because you have to fill a roster out with 53 players, right. and yeah. you've got some young, talented players that if you were starting from scratch as an expansion team, you would want on your roster. 
so they're already mm-hmm. on your roster or potentially can be on your roster. You know, and we know who those players are, and that's what's intriguing to me about Chase Young is that we're seeing some of what we saw or we thought we were going to see for the duration, and he's only 24 years old. You know, Cameron yeah, I Curls, think people yeah. forget that he's, he's still 24, 24 years old and he's coming on a second contract. Yeah. By the time he's done with his next contract, he might not even be 30. So it, it's just that's the type of guy you re-sign and you keep around for a long time. Yeah, and there are things we don't know that maybe they know, and maybe, you know, I saw Nikki Javala's tweet a little while ago where – she said they've they've had a team reach out to them about Montez Sweat, but nobody's reached out to them about Chase Young. You know, there have been a lot of other things with him in his first three and a half seasons, but on the field this year, there has been that indication of what we all thought we were getting when they drafted him number two overall. But But I was just, you know... Uh, taking the ownership situation, which you're 100% right on, like... I hope Josh Harris gets in the room with Martin Mayhew and Marty Herney and Ron Rivera and says, "Look, guys, um, I, you know, th- there may be an opportunity here. I don't want to be at the end of this season and we lose three players to free agency that we could have gotten back, you know, a third, four, and two fourths for, you know, uh, right. on the trade deadline. So I would imagine that somehow, some way, there's th- those conversations are going to take place." But if it were a normal situation, do you think Fuller and Samuel in particular would be on the block, and what would they bring back? I think they've both have had decent years. What like are they having good PFF years? Yeah, I mean Kendall Fuller. This is it's one of the best years he's had um, since he kind of joined Washington. He's always been a really solid corner, but you know this time he's and, and it could be just because you know teams are attacking other corners and, and whatnot, and we've seen that with with Forbes, but he's having a really good year. He's always been a very, very solid corner. Um, so I think he could, you know, attract some, you know, something on the market and something that is valuable. And like you said, if you're not going to use him in your future plans, I, I think it is tough to swallow the fact that you might let him go for absolutely nothing. Um, but again, it, it the NFL is so tough to kind of judge these trades because we just don't see it the way we do with other leagues. Like we don't really see True. trades for rentals uh, very often. So it's tough to kind of, you know, really know what to expect when when you're looking at these sorts of trades. All right, um, let's go backwards a little bit, uh, not just to Sunday, but to the first seven weeks of the season, because I, I think the last time you and I talked was on radio maybe a month ago. So I want to start with Sam Howell, because I know you're, I'm pretty sure, if my memory serves me correctly, you are a big fan of Sam Howell. So how would you evaluate him right now after seven weeks? But prior to the Giants game, it was it was rough. I mean, there is still so much to like on tape, but you're, we're getting to the point where is it enough to kind of counteract this whole sack problem? And prior to the Giants game, the majority of the sacks were on him. Like it was his fault. It, you weren't having there were this offensive line is not great by any standard, but they're not as bad as some of the sack numbers and pressure numbers have seen just because of, you know, the sheer amount of times they're dropping back, the amount of times that Sam is running into pressures and sacks. So I've kind of had to start to ask myself, is the other stuff worth all of these sacks? Because it's tough to get out of us. You know, when you put yourself in first and 16 or second and 18 and stuff like that, it's tough to get out of that consistently. And we, we've seen that these past couple of weeks. So 
it's starting to get to the point where, you know, he's not really figuring it out. And this has been a consistent problem throughout college. And now again, in the NFL through six, seven games, we're starting to get to the point of, you know, this is just kind of who he is and we might have to accept it. And then you have to ask yourself, you know, is, is it worth, you know, is the high end stuff worth, you know, all of these, these negative plays with, with the sacks and whatnot. Um, why I've asked this question of multiple people here over the last week. Cause I had Eric eager on the radio show last week and he he made a statement, which, you know, um, angered a lot of our fans, but got a lot of, <laughs> Oh yeah. Uh, I, I saw that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, in which he said, you know, Sam Howell's a good backup quarterback and, you know, his explanation was an explanation that, that, you know, I've talked about a lot before. I'm sure you have, and many others have, and that is, for whatever reason, this sack problem is something that typically more often than not doesn't improve dramatically. And for me, and I don't know if you feel the same way, but it is a fatal flaw. You can't lose 215 yards of yardage over a five-game period. That's not sustainable, you know, offensive football. You're just punting too much. You're creating, you know, opportunities for the defense, et cetera, et cetera. I think we all understand that. But the question that I asked him, then I asked Jay Gruden, then I asked Doc, I can't remember who else I've asked. Why is it a problem that typically there's no improvement with or very, very modest improvement with? There are a couple of examples. We pointed them out. Alex Smith had an early uh, you know, career problem and then became checked down Charlie, as we know. I think that was, you know, you guys used him as your PFF check down stat, the Alex Smith stat. But why is it something where guys can improve on an interception problem, guys can improve on you know other things, but the sack numbers typically don't improve? Why? It's it's a processing speed sort of thing, and it's tough to really you know speed up that that process once you kind of you know have it. And like you said, there have been examples where guys kind of completely change their game, and you know, and Alex Smith turns down to going to check downs too quickly and then you have a different problem and there are other quarterbacks Kenny Pickett for an example right now who is, is someone who has too quick of a process and he's leaving uh, clean pockets way too early with Howell right now it's the opposite he's staying in there too long he's just kind of too slow to get off like once once he's gone through the progressions nothing's open he's got to go and for whatever reason and I don't know if there is a, a, a solid answer that, that is saying this is the reason why for whatever reason for him it's just it's not clicking. If something is just not clicking in his brain that says, hey, I've got to go. And that could be from, you know, years of playing college and high school ball where he is the best athlete on the field and he can make anybody miss. And he knows he can make anybody miss. And now that you're in the NFL, you can't do that anymore. Uh, I mean, in college, he was he was constantly, you know, forcing missed tackles. He led the NCAA in forced missed tackles for a quarterback. And he set records doing that. And you're not going to do that in the NFL consistently. And so for, for him, it's going to need to, you know, essentially completely switch your mindset. And that's very, very tough to ask. And then it just kind of goes back to whether or not you can accept the sacks. And, and like you said, it, it's tough to, to really kind of accept that when it, it, it when it causes so much damage. When I asked you about Sam Howell, you said, you know, up until Sunday. I'm assuming that it's because, and you did say it, that you know the sacks Sunday weren't the, the the percentage of Sam sacks that they had been through the first six games of the season, and I think you know even without grading every play, 
as you sat there and watched, you saw much quicker pressures and much quicker issues up front um, than we had seen um, in the past. Um, were you surprised? Forget the reasons. Offensive line, receivers, quarterback. Were you surprised even with some extra man protection that Eric Bieniemy consistently dropped him back for eight drives of the first half? I was a little surprised, um, and I, I kind of tweeted out emotionally at halftime saying this is the worst game plan I've ever seen. Rewatching it, I, I don't, I don't put all of the blame on him. I think he was expecting, you know, simple execution, and for whatever reason, the offensive line could not simply execute, you know, pass off on stunts. They couldn't get the line set up the right way. And I don't know if that's on the center or that's on the quarterback who sets the protections. We don't really know that. Right. Um, that's important, by the way, what reason, you just said. What you just said is important. Yeah, it is. Because if it was Sam's job to, you know, to shift protection to avoid these quick pressures and he didn't do it, well, then some of those sacks are on him. Right. Yeah. And, and we we don't know. I mean, it's a lot of times with veteran quarterbacks, we know it's them. They're setting the protections. They've seen it all. They know what to do. They're, they're telling the line where to go. With young quarterbacks, a lot of times it's kind of a mix. It's kind of a 50-50 where right. you know, the center is setting the protections and the quarterback can kind of override it based on what he sees. And as he kind of grows, he gets you know, more you know, comfortable with, with what defenses are throwing at him. So we don't know. But there were, there were too many examples of them you know, sliding the line the wrong way. And for pretty obvious, you know, um, blitzes coming from one side, and, and it, it was it was very frustrating. So I think for Bienemy, it was kind of a thing like they need to execute. Like we have the numbers here to block this; they have to be able to block it. And it, they were simple stunts that they just weren't picking up. Um, and I, I think he finally kind of got that at halftime. Like they're not executing; we've got to really change something. And you can make the argument that saying, "Hey, you you got to make that change quicker." If they're not executing, you've got to adjust to it. Um, but again, at, at some point, you need NFL players to execute on kind of simple assignments. Yeah, I get that, but they've had an issue with the drop back game for a lot of different reasons this year. And I just, I guess I was surprised to see that as a bigger portion of the game plan in the first half than I expected to see it, especially uh, since I think the Buffalo game they had gotten away from that. And when they went to that, it was a lot of times with more max protect. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, uh, the other issue, and I'm just curious, where did Sam grade out Sunday? He had a, um, he had a 44.7, which was one of his worst grades of the year. Um, And that was kind of highlighted by, by three turnover worthy plays. Um, What we gave him there was that, that um, near pick six was, one of the worst, you know, decisions you can have as a quarterback. That was our harshly harshest graded play, um, where he's trying to throw it away sure. in the end zone and just throws it up to Thibodeau, and that was, you know, one of the easiest pick sixes that didn't happen. Um, there was another one in the first quarter where he just kind of you know, threw it right to a defender and it went right through his hand. Right. Um, I can't remember the third one off the top of my head, but there were still some. Well, other, the third you know, one was the interception. You know, right. Yes. Yeah. 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 You're right. You're right. Yep. Um, yeah, that was one he just kind of underthrew, and um, that was open. I mean, I don't think he made the right read there with you know the coverage they were playing, but it was open. If you laser that ball in there, you just kind of floated a little bit. Um, but there were also some high end throws there, like the two to Terry McLaurin down the sideline. There was um, another one at the end of the second half where 
he hit a corner out to, I believe it was Curtis Samuel on the sideline, and went right through his hands. It's a tough, tough catch on the sideline, but the ball was perfectly placed. And um, So it was another kind of up-and-down game, um, but those those turnover-worthy plays, especially the draw pick six, is going to really bring the grade down. Yeah, I thought there were some good plays, too. Like, I thought the fourth and one that they converted on the final drive was, you know, yep. he's backpedaling against pressure, and he makes a really good uh, throw. Uh, to keep the uh, to keep the sticks moving, um, how and, did and even the last play too? The last play too. That was we, I mean <laughs> we charted that as a drop. It it was behind, but uh, you can ask any wide receiver. You sure. can ask Jahan Dotson himself. He'll say he's got to catch it. Got to catch that. You know, it was actually probably the luckiest non-sack of the season because they were completely <laughs> yeah. and he was completely oblivious to uh, to Isaiah Simmons coming off that edge. Had no idea, and Simmons just whiffed. Basically, mm-hmm. um, you know the th- so the, the other thing I was going to s- ask you about is I-, I thought that at times Sunday he was the least accurate he's been. Uh, there were there were a couple of throws that were high. The the first down throw on the final drive, which was their best drive of the game, um, he's really high to Terry. That looked like a catchable ball, and then the third down before the Dotson drop. He's got to give Terry a chance in, in man coverage there in the end zone, right? Yeah. Um, I, that one's tough. I, I don't know if it's a miscommunication and he was expecting Terry to break out wide, but it was just a, a, a very, very strange play. Um, but, no, his, his accuracy has, has started to slip a little bit. I mean, we, we don't use just normal completion percentage. We use adjusted completion percentage, which you know takes right. out drops, it takes out throwaways and all that other sort of and spikes and whatnot. And he had the two lowest adjusting completion percentages of his season uh, these past two weeks against the Giants in, in Atlanta. And like you said, he's missing easy throws. And we saw it, I think it was one of the first throws um, of the game where he just completely missed an easy, like, five-yard stick route to Curtis Samuel. And um, I'm not sure if that's a, something we really need to worry about. It's only been you know two games right now that's kind of really seen that drop off. But um, it, it's obviously not great. Um just curious, how do you grade that intentional grounding penalty? Um, I think we just went with a zero um, because I'm not sure that it was a penalty or should have been a penalty. Um, I mean, Robinson was was right there in the flat, but usually with those, we just kind of cap it at, as like a minus point five, if because you're you're essentially avoiding a sack, um, but it turns into the same sort of sack yardage, so. We usually kind of cap that at minus point five if we think that he's throwing it away unnecessarily. Um, but for for ones like that where it's kind of open to interpretation, we usually just just leave it at zero. Uh, it, it's funny because the, it, that play, I agree with you. Like more times than not, the receivers in the vicinity, like he wasn't right there, but he was close enough that they'll right. usually like Kirk had one on Monday night where he just threw it into the dirt as he got blitzed on a screen, and and the fullback Ham is is near it, but has absolutely no idea it's coming. And they didn't yeah. call grounding. Um, and on Sunday they called it, and I don't think Sam had any clue that Robinson Jr. was anywhere near where he was throwing the ball. That was a clear trying to get rid of the football and, as he said recently, find an incompletion versus a sack. It just happened that yeah, I, Robinson Jr. was in the neighborhood. Yeah, it was just a uh, it was just another kind of blown block. I think it was by the, the tight end on that play where – instantly lost the rep and Sam was, was in trouble right away and just kind of got rid of it. But 
Yeah, intentional grounding is it's a very subjective call. Like you said, they usually kind of give them the benefit of the doubt there. Yeah. Um, and, and that one was a little, a little surprising. Um, how are you grading Chris Rodriguez in these limited snaps, which are typically carries? Uh, I've already mentioned, like, if you're scouting Washington, when he comes into the game, there's like a 75% chance he's going to get the ball. Um, what do you think of him, and how have you guys graded him as a, as a running back? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough with such a small sample size. I mean, he's only had 21 total snaps, and to your point, 14 of them have been runs um, to him. So it, it is a very small sample size right now, but it's, you know, they're positive games. There hasn't been a time where, you know, he hasn't really gotten positive yardage, I don't think. So it's been promising to see it. It's stuff you want to see. It's why you kind of keep drafting these running backs late um, and see if they can turn into someone that can, you know, carry a workload later on. But um, it's been it's been promising to start so far. Uh, I would like to see more of a, a sample size to really kind of make any judgments on it. Uh, we're talking uh, to Nick Nick Ackridge from Pro Football Focus. So back to Sam again for a moment. Given that you were super high on him, um, but you know, open minded to see how it played out this season. What is your hunch after seven starts? Is he an NFL starting quarterback or is he an NFL backup quarterback? I think he's going to be one of those guys that that can that can trick a lot of coaches. Um, and what I mean by that is he's a guy that you're going to see the flashes and some coaches will only see those flashes and think, Hey, I can fix the sack issue. I can fix this. And he might be one of those guys that turn into, you know, a career journeyman type of quarterback. Um, I think that is the lowest, that's his floor right now. And for a fifth round quarterback, that's really great to be a journeyman backup quarterback. Um, I think people took a, you know, Eric's, comment the wrong way because they want you know whenever you talk about a young rookie quarterback fans are up in arms they want to defend him because they want him to be good so so badly that they will kind of throw out the bad to you know kind of you know make excuses for all the bad stuff you know the the sacks they're all the offensive line and and whatnot but if you really look at it a fifth round rookie quarterback or a fifth round quarterback that's only played eight starts right now to kind of say that his floor is, you know, a journeyman backup, good backup quarterback is, is really, really solid. Um, I think that if you can fix the sacks, which like we've already talked about it, it's going to be tough to do. Then, then you're looking at a solid NFL starter. Um, but for me, I, I think it's just too, I think we've seen enough now that it, it's going to be something that's going to be really, really tough for him to fix. Um, and, and I do think he just kind of, you know, turns into that, that journeyman sort of backup quarterback. Tell me about the wide receivers right now. Not necessarily Jahan Dotson specifically, although I'd love your thoughts on him. But I thought earlier in the year, especially against Denver, they they there was a lot of of space, especially with Dotson actually in particular. And then in recent weeks, I know that I have read um, maybe from you or others that and Cooley came on here and talked about it after one of the games that there just wasn't a lot of. Of, of open receivers at times. What do you make of the, the – just give me your overall on, on, a, on, a, on an area that we all considered to be the strength of the football team or at least the second strength of the football team after the D-line, the wide receivers, the pass catchers. Right. I, it's, been, um, it's been very, very strange because there, there are a lot of examples of 
you know, Howell missing them when he's taking these kind of sacks. And there are a lot of open receivers. And Jahan Dotson is also still they're they're getting open. I mean, there are still there are times against the Giants where you couldn't really tell if they got open because the pressure was there so quickly they weren't even out of their breaks at that point. Um, so it was tough to kind of really pin it on them. But there are plenty of examples of them still consistently getting open. Uh, I, I mean, I think of the Giants game and there was on one of the sacks that there was pressure so quickly off the edge that Sam had absolutely no chance. But Terry was open in an instant on a crosser, and if he had any sort of time. He can just easily layer that ball in there, and we're looking at a 30, 40-yard gain. So it's tough to evaluate wide receivers when the quarterback play and offensive line play is not up to par. Um, But I think that they are open. They're getting open. Um, Curtis Samuel is having a pretty solid year right now. We'd all love to see more from Terry and obviously Jahan Dawson. But I think that they're getting open, and and it's just kind of tough with, you know, how the quarterback's taking sacks and now in this past week how the offensive line was just quickly giving up pressures and sacks. Uh, they like Pringle clearly, um, because he's out there and he's made some good catches. What is it about him that they like? Do you think? I think just familiarity with with the offense. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure how long he's been with was with Kansas City before, but they just they just know what to expect, and and I think at times that's nice to have it as someone that's going to come in and play like maybe five to ten snaps. You just know you know he's going to run the right route and be in the right place. Um, and like you said, he's made some good catches. So it's it's what you kind of want to see out of you know backup wide receivers. All right, let me finish up with this. Give me a player that we haven't talked about that you think is having a good season, and give me one that's having more of a disappointing season, based on our kind of preseason expectations. Yeah, um, I would lean on I would lean on Kendall Fuller as one that's really kind of surprised me, um, but we've already kind of touched on that. Jamin Davis as well. Um, he's, you know, he's, he's shown a lot of flashes, um, of him just kind of being quicker in the run game and understanding where he needs to, you know, fit and, and whatnot. So I would, I would lean on those two, um, on the defensive side as guys that, you know, I didn't really expect a massive year out of them. And I think Kendall Flores having a career year right now and, and Jamin Davis is, is stepping up and showing why he was a first round pick. It's taken a long time, but there are still some flashes there. Um, you know, as for the flip side of that, um, I would say it, it's, I hate picking on Forbes, but when you're a rookie corner, they come in and, you know, now we're looking at, he was benched within six games and playing five snaps. And I think that one, I, I was never too high on him. Um, but I, I was never this low. I didn't think it would be, would be this bad, uh, coming in. So what's, I would, what's, I would say what's that, been I mean, his biggest issue tackling or coverage? It's been both, uh, tackling with him was uh, people wanted to talk about his size being the reason he can't tackle um, or was people would talk about the size and he's not going to be able to tackle in, in the NFL. But for me, it was never his size. He was, he was always willing to throw his body in there. Right. The problem was when you watched him in college is he's just throwing his body. He's not wrapping up. He's not doing any of that sort of stuff. And we've seen that in the NFL now where he's just throwing his body at like uh, receivers and in the run game and whatnot. And it's, it's not working. Um, so, that's kind of been his problem when it comes to tackling. And then for coverage, uh, I wrote a very long article about it, how they've kind of, you know, used him in a spot that he's not familiar with um, after drafting him. And, you know, he played in a very similar system. And 
in college to what they played these past couple of years, and then they kind of completely switched it up, and now he's playing in something completely different. <laughs> explain, um, explain that. Like they're playing more man coverage than they than than we've seen in recent years, right? Their man coverage it's up a tad. It, it's up a little bit more. Um, but I, I don't know if it's necessarily the man coverage. Just it's just the way they structure their defense in years past. Um, Kendall Fuller has stayed exclusively on the right, right side. Right. Um, he's almost always been on the right side, and, and that's no matter where the ball is lined up, uh, whether he's to the boundary or to the field. Uh, he's always, always, always been on the right side. And in college, Emmanuel Forbes was the same. He always stayed on the right side of the field. So going into the season, I expected one of them to either go to the left, um, whether that be Fuller or, or Forbes. But instead, what they've done now is both of them kind of flip sides. And now they're lining up based on where the ball is located on the hash. So um, Fuller has always been, I might be getting this backwards, uh, Fuller has always been the field corner, which means he's always lined up to the wide side of the field, right. depending on where the ball where is. The, which um, hash placed. the ball's on, and then right. Forbes, yeah, and then Forbes has been the boundary corner. So they're flipping sides constantly. Um, and again, it's not a complete excuse for some of the lack of, you know, play that we've seen from Forbes, but it, it's, you know, you're taking him and you're putting him in a system that he wasn't familiar with, despite, you know, the previous system being a fit for what he played in college. And it's it kind of, I, I kind of, you know, compare it to like you're taking uh, a left tackle and then you're drafting him to play left tackle. And then all of a sudden you want to say, hey, go play right tackle. And yes, he can do it, but it's kind of all backwards now. And then you're kind of putting him back to left tackle and you're going back and forth between left and right tackle. And that's kind of what it's doing. Um, it just changed the the way you can you know changes the technique you have to play with, um, and just kind of you know how you how you backpedal essentially sometimes you know it's just it's just backwards. You didn't. Um, so you, it's just been a very it's you, been very very strange. Is, is is all it is. You didn't mention Jahan Dotson. <laughs> I did not mention Jahan Dotson. So the problem with Dotson right now is again I think he's getting open. I, I've seen plenty of plays where he's open. The problem is right now is, is the drops, and I wouldn't say it's a massive problem, but it's, it seems like it's a huge problem because they've come in such big spots. Obviously, it's, you know, it's, it's the last play of the game on the fourth down. Should have caught it. Again, it was behind, but he would have told you he should have caught it, and there was another big one the last week where it was, could have been a 30, 40-yard gain on a, on a perfect throw by Howell. So I think those drops, hopefully they don't get into his head because I don't, drops aren't that big of an issue. Uh, they weren't in college. They weren't last year. And I, I still don't think there's that big of an issue now. They could turn into that if he kind of lets this get to his head. But um, I, I'm always worried about a receiver if he's open or not, and, and I've seen him getting open. Nick Ackridge, everybody, at PFF underscore Nick, A-K-R-I-D-G-E. He does a great job uh, for PFF. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, and he's a fan of the team. And so um, – He's involved. Whether he's actually involved uh, work-wise, he is involved certainly personally uh, in uh, how they're doing. I appreciate you doing this, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, no problem. Up next, Mark Zuckerman will jump on with me. We'll talk about Bryce Harper coming up small last night uh, and a lot more about the Major League Baseball playoffs right after these words from a few of our sponsors. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This segment of the show brought to you by Window Nation. Go to windownation.com, mention my name, call them at 866-90-NATION. Mention my name, you'll get a free estimate. You've got nothing to lose. If you've been interested in new windows because your windows are old or because they're leaky or drafty or they're hard to close or they're hard to open when you want to open them, you need new windows. You're paying far too much on your heating bill, and winter's right around the corner. You're paying far too much on your air conditioning bill in the summer. Plus, by the way, your house doesn't look as good. Call them at 866-90-NATION or go to windownation.com. Mention my name. They will take good care of you. And right now is Window Nation's best offer of the year. Buy two windows, get two free, with no money down, no payments, and no interest for two years. That's half price on your windows when you start paying for them in the year 2025 without paying any interest on the no money down, no payments you made for those two years. So take advantage of this offer right now. 866-90-NATION or windownation.com. Hitters count. Harper, a high fly ball to center field. Thomas settles under it, and Kevin Ginkle delivers two big outs for the Diamondbacks. That was a big moment in Bryce Harper's career last night. And for those of you wanting me to admit, hey, Sheehan, what happened to the biggest clutch player in team sports? He choked big time in the moment. Uh, If that's what you want from me... (laughs) Fine. He didn't deliver in that big moment. That is the truth. Two men on, two men out, four to two, bottom of the seventh. And it did feel like in the moment that that out eliminated the Phillies from the postseason, even though they had two more innings and six more outs to play with. Uh, but yeah, it was a big moment in Bryce Harper's career last night. And despite, you know, basically delivering in every other moment, the biggest moments are always out there when you haven't won the World Series, which he has not. Uh, to talk about last night, to talk about the night before, to talk about the World Series upcoming is my good friend Mark Zuckerman from Masson Sports. You can follow him on Twitter at Mark Zuckerman. Uh, and listen to his Natch Chat podcast with Al Galdi. You can get that anywhere you get a podcast. So let's start with last night. Um, I'm a big Harper fan. I don't know where you are in this. You know, you're you're more of a reporter. I'm a big Bryce Harper fan. I think he's delivered over and over again in big spots, including, by the way, with the Nationals in their postseason games. I think that sometimes gets forgotten. Did you expect him to come through last night in that spot? Because I did. Yeah, I did because I think, especially in the last two Octobers with the Phillies, more often than not, he has come through. And that's the thing. I mean, last year he was brilliant. He did provide against the Padres the game-changing, series-changing home run 
that essentially won them the pennant and made him into a new legend, I think, in Philadelphia sports lore. And really, through the first multiple rounds of the playoffs this year and earlier in this series, he was doing the same thing all over again. So, yeah, you, you kind of feel like, okay, well, he's going to do it. Now, the guy he was facing, Kevin Ginkle, who nobody across baseball, myself included, knew much about, has just burst onto the scene here in the postseason and become like the most unhittable reliever in baseball somehow with a devastating slider. I mean, he got out of that jam. He didn't create it. He brought it to get out of it against Turner and Harper and then retired the side in the eighth and become a huge weapon for them. And I think we have to remind ourselves, even the very best players of all time still fail more often than they come through. And nobody has yet, to my knowledge, uh, hit over 500 uh, over the entirety of a, of a season or their playoff career. So, yeah, I expected it, but I don't think we should be shocked that in that one moment he just didn't come through. I mean, I think that's so, like, I mean, obviously most of the people listening understand that in baseball, you know, hitting, getting a hit one out of three times is really good. So that means twice out of three at-bats you're not going to do much. But what happened really was that over the final two games of this series, he was 0 for 7. And, you know, you had two chances to eliminate um, the uh, Arizona Diamondbacks. And when they won game five, I didn't think there was any chance they weren't going to win the series. When Altuve hit that home run on Friday night, I didn't think there was any chance Houston was going to get eliminated. Um, But despite, you know... Five home runs, 12 RBIs, 12 hits, 12 walks drawn in his first 11 postseason games this year. Over the final two, he was over, And it was not the Padres game from last year, which was a game five. This was facing elimination in game seven, and he was over. And I think people are going to remember that. Oh, of course. And, and you know... <laughs> I think you and I have been around long enough to know that the um, average Philadelphia sports fan is not your average American <laughs> sports fan. Short memories. Treat these things a little differently than maybe the rest of us rational people out there would. Uh, and it's fair. Look, you, you know, they paid him all that money. They have uh, hopped on his shoulders ever since he got there for one reason, for him to deliver for them in those biggest moments and ultimately lead them to the promised land. And as of yet, he hasn't quite gotten them there. Uh, you know, it felt like, I think more so in Game 7 than in Game 6, it felt like not just Harvard, but Turner, Schwarber, Castellanos, all of their big guys, it felt like they were feeling the weight of that moment. And, and you know, you said you never expected the Dimebacks to, to come back after losing Game 5. I'll agree with you on that. But once they won Game 6, I actually feel like it flipped in their favor because all the pressure in the world was now on the Phillies in Game 7 in their ballpark as opposed to the Diamondbacks who nobody ever believed would even be in that position. And just watching that game last night, it felt like the Diamondbacks were playing free and easy and it was the Phillies who were tight. Now, you know, nobody knows other than the individuals what was really going inside on inside their own heads. But just watching it from afar, it felt like they did finally for the first time let the moment become too big for them. Now, Bryce is as good as anybody at not doing that, I think, over the course of his career. But he is human, and every once in a while, in a spot like that, it may happen. And to me, the fascinating thing you know, will be next year and beyond, uh, does he use that as fuel to try to now get over that elusive hump that he's been really his whole 
career going back to the Nationals, still, still searching for that World Series trophy, that ring that he was looking for in 2015 with Max Scherzer. Um, does he use that to fuel him, or does this kind of weigh on him? And I think knowing him, that I don't, I think eventually he's going to get there. Or if they don't get there, it won't be because of him. It'll be because of other guys. Well, look, they were playing in that game last night primarily because of him. Um, because they beat right. the heavily favored Braves, and he had an unbelievable uh, series. But you know what's interesting? As you said that, last night uh, going into that game, I felt like, not that I want to refer to them as a front runner, um, but I felt like it was really important for them to get the lead. They did have a 2-1 to lead, and when they snagged that 2-1 to lead, I thought that they might be off and running at that point. But there was kind of a tightness in that team and in that ballpark last night, as loud as it was, when my when um when Arizona scored first, you know, and they got one in the top of the first, and I just thought, you know, like like you said, the pressure had shifted back, and in a sport in which you, I mean, this is going to be very um, I don't know what it's going to be, but you can't necessarily get your nerves out physically, like. In a football game or in a basketball game, couple trips down the floor, or you know, going down to cover a kick, or you you get you get smacked upside the head, and it's like I'm in the game. Baseball's this non-contact sport, and you're at the plate, and there's a lot of tension. I, you could feel it. I think watching it last night, that they were tight. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right, and I think you put it a good way. And I I forget exactly what the stat was, but I, I, I think they mentioned it in Game 6 at some point when Dimebacks took the lead. I think that was the first time the entire postseason the Phillies trailed at home. Yeah. If I have that right? Uh, when pro- they were talking about how the crowd had finally, like, tailed off. Th- th- those crowds were in- insane. And, insane. you know, were, like, on their feet the entire night, every one of those games. Well, it's a whole lot easier to feel that way when your team is ahead or at least tied. Yeah. All of a sudden you're trailing and it does suck the energy out of the place and now you have a tension in there that is is you know had become uncommon to everyone around there. So I think there's that. I think the other more of a baseball point to all this, and I and I've thought this about the Phillies for the last two years, and in a lot of ways, it has shocked me that they have had as much success as they have had in the postseason. Which is this: they are built to win on the home run. I mean, it is clear that that is their offensive approach, and when they hit them, it's great and they win games. But when they don't, they don't have that ability to just drive in a guy from third base like the Diamondbacks did so well, like the Nats in 2019 did well in addition to hitting home runs. They also had the knack for the clutch hits. And it it felt like, as that was all playing out, uh, it, it, it's such an all-or-nothing approach. And when it works, it's great. But when it doesn't, it leaves you looking like they were last night. Not like they were shut out. It's not like they didn't have the opportunities. There were guys on base almost every inning. Right. But if you don't have that ability to get the bat on the ball and poke a single left field and drive in a runner from second, um, I've, home runs are great, and, and the stats show you hit more home runs, you win. But they aren't always there, and they certainly weren't there the last two nights of them, and I, I do feel like all along that's been kind of the Phillies' one fatal flaw is that they rely so much on the home run that there are times that you need something else to drive in a run. 
I would. I I I, I also felt like you know after Nola um, and Wheeler, it was a problem. Although Suarez pitched well last night, but then Kimbrel, you if you really want to go back, I mean it's the it's the lead they gave up. Um, and lost six to five, and in game four that ended up being a big difference, which was a Kimbrel sort of meltdown. But r- real quickly for you, watching Arizona last night sort of manufacture runs, you know, with you know stolen bases and sacrifices, and can you win enough games over the course of October to win a World Series that way in this day and age, or not? It it, it is a little harder. Uh, to do that, but I do think it is a quality you need to have. Now, the, the best teams are going to have both, and I think that the 2019 Nats are a great example of that. Obviously, we remember the huge home runs by Soto and Rendon and Zim, uh, you know, that were, you know, uh, necessary for them to go all the way like they did. But think about also how many of the clutch hits, Soto in the wild card game, the clutch hits in the World Series, how many times. Uh, they tacked on runs with guys like Adam Eaton and even Rendon as well and Soto uh, and Cabrera, just all, all these guys who delivered in those kind of situations. I think you need both of them to do it. Now, can you win just with the, you know base hits and sacrifices and stolen bases? It, it's hard in today's sport. The Royals, and it's almost a decade now since they did it, they were that kind of team, great at contact, you know, pushing the envelope and making things happen. The Diamondbacks are a little bit of that style. They hit a few home runs, but not as many. Uh, it's going to be tough, and it is an interesting dynamic now in the World Series, them versus Texas, because the Rangers do hit home runs. That is a powerful lineup, and so it's a little bit of a dichotomy between the two. So, I mean, do I think the Diamondbacks can win the World Series if they hit zero home runs? Probably not. But if they hit a few in the right moments, and then more importantly than that, uh, if they are able to manufacture runs the way that they did, last night by being aggressive on the bases, by getting the bat on the ball when they needed to, um, you know, I do think they have a chance if they have that balanced attack. Tell me why Bruce Bochy's so good everywhere he is. You know, he it's funny because you hear him speaking, he's got this deep, grovelly voice, and uh, it, it almost sounds like he doesn't come across as very intelligent, and that's the opposite, of course. Number one, he's really smart. Uh, and his, uh, certainly going back to his time in San Francisco, as you saw, willing to use relievers and pitchers in a way that I think now is becoming more common, but at the time was a little revolutionary. The whole Madison Bumgarner out of the bullpen, the idea of like bringing in your top relievers earlier in a game, not just waiting for the eighth or the ninth. I mean, think back to the 2014 series against the Nationals when Matt Williams was the one criticized for managing paint by numbers and well this is our seventh inning guy right. this is our eighth inning guy and it backfired and Bochi was more uh, having a feel for the moment and knowing who to trust so I think there's that he also just has this calming effect I think he doesn't get high doesn't get low um, and because of what he's done in the game now maybe this wasn't the case initially with San Francisco but certainly when he arrived in Texas with a team that had some big names and some star power but obviously had not won anything in quite some time he brought instant credibility, kind of the, the way that Dusty Baker did in a lot of ways, that just you walk in the door and everybody knows who you are and knows the success you've had, and they're going to trust you. So the calming influence, the track record, and the fact that he really is a smart in-game X's and O's manager, 
uh, you put that all together, and I think, you know, obviously he's a Hall of Famer even before he took this job, and now it's a, a slam dunk, I think, that he gets it. Um, that performance by Garcia in the series and then in Game 7 is just all time. It seems like, I don't know what it is, whether it's the Altuve, you know, from earlier in the series or the Garcia throughout the whole series with the RBI record and the incredible Game 7. We've just seen some incredible individual performances in this postseason, right? Yeah, and, and I, I, what I love about this is, and we see this every year, somebody who maybe on the national stage is not well-known or known at all, bursting onto the scene like this. Think of Randy Rosarena with the Rays a few years ago. Adolis Garcia now, Cattell Marte with the Diamondbacks. Um, I, I love how this offers uh, the, the, this grand stage for good players who maybe fans of their own teams know them, to now be seen on the national stage. Juan Soto was that guy. The world didn't know who Juan Soto was. Right. He did. The world didn't know until October of 2019. And to see the way some of these guys rise to the occasion, what Garcia did was insane in that series. And all the credit in the world to him for coming through when the emotions were running really hot. And I'll admit, I thought, whether he was hit intentionally or not in, in Game 5, yeah. Uh, the way he handled that and the way that he instigated, really, the benches clearing, I thought that was going to backfire on him big time. And instead, he took it right back and completely stuck it to the Astros every chance that he got. I mean, that was one of the most, to me, remarkable individual, uh, you know, middle finger to the other team that I've ever seen in a postseason series. I mean, he owned them by the end of that series. That was remarkable. All right, uh, who do you like in this World Series? First of all, I mean, you know, I'm going to watch it. Uh, it's, you know, a tradition in October to watch a World Series since I was a kid. But this has to be a bit devastating for Fox executives. Um, they clearly wanted a star like Harper and a team like Philadelphia in it. These are not two small markets, although you know, Arizona, you know, Sky, Phoenix isn't, you know, a top 10 market, I don't think. It's probably top 20. Um, but it seems to be a letdown, I think, for a lot of sports fans, maybe, that we're going to see Texas, Arizona. Maybe not a lot of baseball fans. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. But who do you like in the series? Well, to, to the first point, and yeah. I agree with you. The people at Fox and probably some at MLB are saying, brace for very low ratings and there's going to be a narrative from people out there about oh nobody likes baseball anymore look they can't get good ratings unless the you know the dodgers or the yankees or the red sox are in it and you know what fine but to everyone else out there who cares what the national tv ratings are if these are two really good teams with growing stars who maybe they aren't as well known right now as bryce harper and kyle schwarber are well maybe by the end of this series they're going to start to know who they are and in the coming years they will be. You know, Jose Altuve, people around baseball knew who he was, but until the Astros won that World Series for the first time in 17, he wasn't a superstar that everybody on the planet knew. So maybe one of these guys turns into that. So, I, I, you know, I, I love it. I think it's a great matchup. I love to see the parity the sport has now. between nine champions in 10 years. 14 different teams have made the World Series in the last decade. This is more than any other sport has. And for some reason, people view baseball as struggling the way that other sports are not. And I'm saying, hang on a second. This is good for the sport when you have more teams winning, more fan bases falling in love with their teams. I think that has long-lasting ramifications that matter way more 
than what the national TV ratings for the series are. So that's my point on that. As far as the actual series, I feel like, just like in the past ones, that Texas should be favored over Arizona. Um, the thump they have in their lineup is legit and has been all year long. Uh, and we know that Arizona doesn't really stack up in the same way. They go about it a different way. Um, the, what's funny, the Dimebacks' top pitchers, uh, Merrill Kelly and Zach Gallon, were not great. They didn't win, I think, one of their four games, I guess they won, against the Phillies, um, whereas the Rangers have done better with their top guys, Montgomery. Now, Max Scherzer is not Max Scherzer anymore. Uh, whether it's the injury or just old age right. or combination, he's not that guy. So, he, to me, is not the X factor thinking, oh, they got Max, so watch out whenever he pitches. He, he's secondary to the staff. He was, he was pretty bad um, in both of his starts. Yeah, exactly. And you could say, well, he's coming back from an injury. Okay, yeah, that's all true. But this goes back a few years now. Really, right. since he left the Nats, he wasn't great with the Dodgers. He wasn't great with the Mets. Uh, he, he, he's, he's not who he used to be. And, and he, he gives you everything he's got, and that's why we all love him. But he's not what he used to be. We all know it. I don't know if he knows it yet or not. Uh, I think I take the Rangers in seven, but I will just tell you, I've been so impressed with the Diamondbacks and their resilience. <laughs> they aren't phased by anything. They can come back, and their bullpen, the back of their bullpen, has been lights out, whereas the Rangers actually was shaky. So I could absolutely see a scenario where the Diamondbacks win a lot of close games by winning them late. But I think the Rangers' offense and home field advantage is a little too much, so I'll say Rangers in seven. You know I kind of forgot this, even though I do know this, that you are from uh, that area of the country in Arizona. Are you are, are you a Diamondbacks fan? So they arrived in 1998, which is the year I graduated college. So I wasn't really living there anymore. I was there that summer as an intern covering them, actually a decent amount, that first year. Uh, they were my second team kind of for a while there. I grew up as a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. Um, it's been a long time since I lived there. My family, a lot of families still there. They're, some of them are really into it. Some are kind of indifferent to them. I haven't felt a connection to them in a while, but I will say that watching them over the last several weeks, it's been cool to see. I've kind of gotten into it again. I know it's a big deal for them and for the city, which, um, the 2001 Dimex team is still the only professional sports team to ever win a, a championship in Arizona. Right. Uh, the yeah. Cardinals obviously haven't won it. The Suns have come close, but haven't the Coyotes never been close. This is a big deal for them, and it would be a big deal if they win it. So, yeah, deep down, would I feel better if the Dimebacks won it as a fan? Yeah. But uh, the Rangers obviously have never won it either. <laughs> they're, they've been around the longest, going all the way back to the Senators in 1961. And while there are fans here who maybe don't ever want to root for that franchise to finally win, I think it would be pretty cool for them to win their first title. Yeah, I don't care about – I mean, that's 1971 <laughs> that they left um, to, to become – And we the, got our title here. Let, already, let, let me just, we got a World yeah, Series here. I mean, well, and not only that, so, you know, Houston ends up losing a best of seven in a series without the home team winning once to Washington in 2019 and to Texas, who was formerly Washington – in right. 2023, I, I, a lot of people listening have no idea that the Texas Rangers moved from Washington, D.C. as the Senators back in 1971. By the way, Phoenix, the number 11 market in the country uh, in go. terms of TV size. Go, go and big time. It wasn't when I lived there, I can tell you that. No, it wasn't. <laughs> no, it was like, you know, 
It was like that show on CBS for years, Alice, which was based out of Phoenix. You probably remember it. It was like, you know, that yeah, was the... Like a little dust town, right? It was like a little dust town. It was the beginning of, like, you know, this idea that Sunbelt, you know... I don't even know if that's considered the Sun Belt. I guess it is, but it was the move from the Rust Belt to the Sun Belt era in this country because people said, and that's exactly what my that's exactly what my family did. We moved from Pittsburgh to Phoenix in 1978. There you and go. There were a lot of others who did the same thing. There you go. Uh, all right. Thanks for doing this. Hope you're well. Again, at Mark Zuckerman on Twitter, Nat's Chat Podcast with Galdi, MassInSports.com for everything that he writes about. We'll talk about the Nats sometime before next season. Thanks for doing this. All right. Thanks, Kevin. Mark Zuckerman, everybody. Always love talking to him. One last thing before I leave, because I told you in the open I would uh, respond um, to many of you who have had a problem with me rooting for Bryce Harper, feeling the way that I do about Bryce Harper. He has become one of my favorite players in sports. It's true. Um, And you just don't understand it because you know that I'm a Nats fan and I'm a DC sports fan. And my God, how could you do that? The Phillies are, you know, the arch rival. And I, I just, I don't feel that way about the Phillies, nor should I feel that way about the Phillies. Uh, anybody that feels like the Phillies are this arch rival and you're thrilled that they lost last night, it's just, it's such a reach. You are trying way too hard. Nobody in Philadelphia thinks of the Washington Nationals as a rival team. Wouldn't even occur to a Philadelphia sports fan that the Nats are somehow a rival. So why would I feel that way about them? Like, my team has never played in a pennant race September series against Philadelphia, has never played in a playoff series against Philadelphia. It's just so fake. Like, you're just trying way too hard. Or... If you feel like the Phillies are really some arch enemy rival, I would suggest that there's a chance you've never actually rooted for a team with a real legitimate rival. That feeling of having a true rival is so intense, it's very emotional, um, and it's based on what happens on the field primarily. You know, it's not, it's not based on one team trying to block another team's fan base from buying tickets to games, which is what the Nats tried to do a, you know, several years ago. We're not going to let the Philly fans take over the park because they're our rivals. No, they're not. I would have sold them as many tickets as possible if I had been in charge of revenue. Um, it's not because Bryce Harper left and went to another team. That didn't all of a sudden create a rivalry. Uh, It's certainly not because Montreal, which is where the team came from, at one point may have had some sort of rivalry with Philadelphia in the 80s or the 70s. Rivalries are based on, you know, a history of important games, big games, moments that you will never forget in big games. Controversial moments are often a big part of it. You know, the the rivalry feeling is based on a longer history than the team's even been around for, really, for the most part. 
Um, you know, I guess that there are intense short-term rivalries that develop. Remember a few years ago, kind of Seattle and San Francisco in that NFC West, they had some big games, NFC championship, you know, games, playoff games, big regular season games at the end of the year to decide the division, et cetera. Um, you know, you've had some of those pop up over the years, but I just don't see where somebody could really be worked up over the Philadelphia Phillies as a Nats fan. To me, that's sort of part and parcel to what, uh, unfortunately, a lot of the teams in town have uh, as a significant percentage of those that would call themselves fans. They're just kind of bandwagon jumpers. They want to feel a part of something. If they were a true rival, you'd feel it. And by the way, let me mention this. Because I have been a fan of teams with real heated rivalries. The Cowboys were a heated, hated rival. The feelings were bloodthirst whenever those games happened. Same thing about the Giants and the Eagles at various times, but nothing like the Cowboys. If you've been a longtime Caps fan, you've felt it with the history that you have with the Pittsburgh Penguins. As a Maryland basketball fan, I felt it, and and there was nothing like being in that arena for a Duke game. And by the way, Maryland wasn't even Duke's chief rival. We were a rival, but we weren't Carolina. But still, the intensity of the two fan bases, of the two programs, the two the games, and there were just so many massively important games played over a long period of time. Like, you, you really know what a rivalry is and the feeling of that if you've rooted for one, um, a team with a legitimate rival. The Nats don't have a rival, a real traditional rival. They don't. If they, if, oh, I know what I was going to say. Sorry, I lost my train of thought. But the funny thing about rooting for the Phillies and some of you having taken exception to that is that the irony of that is is that when you are really part of a fan of a team that has a true legitimate rival weirdly enough you want that team to do well because the best moments in a rivalry are the head-to-head moments when both teams are at the top or near the top because that makes those games bigger. I can remember always thinking, I want it to come down to Redskins-Cowboys. I want Redskins-Cowboys in the NFC title game, which by definition means I'm rooting for the Cowboys to a certain extent to win alongside of us. I can remember, you know, with Duke, it's like, God, I hope they I hope they win their Sweet 16 game. I want to rematch with them in the finals. I want to rematch with them in the Final Four. I want to be on that stage again where that rivalry is highlighted and we have those feelings again. Where, yeah, so anyway, I'm not saying that I'm rooting for the Cowboys because I'm not. As long as we suck, I want them to suck too. Um, And I don't have the same feelings for the Cowboys anymore because it was a rivalry that was 30, 40 years. But like with a lot of things dealing with the Dan Snyder era, it faded a little bit. Maybe it'll come back. Who knows? But anyway, to those of you that reached out in the last couple of weeks saying, 
man, what's wrong with you? I thought you were a Nats fan. How could you root for Trey Turner and Bryce Harper and the Phillies? Well, because I don't view them as a rival. And I, I actually don't understand how a guy that, that provided so much here, um, you don't understand the idea of you know continuing to follow that guy's career. Sort of like you-know-who, the quarterback of that team that plays in the Twin Cities. <laughs> Enough of that. I'm done for the day. Back tomorrow with Tommy. You like that? You like that?